Thank you for joining us for the Cross Loganville podcast as we continue our way through the book of James. Hey, good morning, guys. It's a great day to be alive. If you've got your uh, Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. We've been in a series uh, since the uh, first Sunday of June, and we've been going through the book of James, which has been absolutely uh, phenomenal. If you've missed any of our messages, you can go to our website, thecrossloganville.org. All of our messages are there. We upload our sermons there. Uh, again, using the Uversion Bible app, all of our sermon notes are uploaded every week. And so if you're on the Uversion Bible app, you'll be able to, to jog along and uh, to make notes uh, as you see fit of how it applies to you. Let's do, let's do it one more time. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that our hearts would be open, that our ears would be able to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is communicating and that you would bring about transformation and God-style change in our lives. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. If I had to title this talk with you today, I would title it The Problem with Pleasure. The Problem with Pleasure, and that's what we're going to dive into today. G.K. Chesterton is one of my uh, favorite guys to read, if you will, and some of the quotes that uh, we extract from him are amazing. Chesterton is the one who said, uh, tolerance is the virtue for the man with no conviction. He also said that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. He was a British journalist who really was serious about his walk with Christ. Listen to this quote, meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. It comes from being weary of pleasure. Think about it. The pursuit of pleasure is very exhausting. It's very empty, and it will lead to you being a wearied soul, if you will. John Wesley is one of the great uh, theologians and evangelists over the last uh, couple hundred years, and God used him in a great way over in uh, the UK and different parts of Europe, the whole Wesleyan movement. Uh, was started really by John Wesley and his brother, Charles Wesley. When he was 22 years old, he received a letter from his mom, Susanna. And here's what she said. The rule is this, son. Whatever weakens your reasoning, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, whatever takes away your delight for spiritual things, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, no matter how good in itself it might be. Think about it. Anything that would distort or blur your view of God, anything that weakens our reasoning, impairs our mind, sin, the pursuit of pleasure, that is the culture in which we find ourselves living today. As we look around our culture, people are intoxicated with the pursuit of pleasure. And, and as a result of that, it distorts and it disrupts community and family and authenticity in relationships. I was pondering this over the last few weeks, and I want you to think about this. I've heard many, many testimonies over the last years that when a person began to share 
about their sinful pleasure, they talked about it almost with heightened enthusiasm. You ever heard those stories? They talk about their sinful pleasure, their sinful life, almost with enthusiasm before they came to know Christ. But when they talk about how they met Jesus, it's almost like all the fun and all the joy and all the pleasure was gone. I was chasing money, and I was chasing women, and I was chasing, but then I met Jesus, and I don't drink anymore, and I don't screw around on my wife anymore, and I don't, and I don't. It's a jacked up narrative right there, but yet for so many people, it's almost like they equate knowing God with the elimination of pleasure. And I can tell you right now, God is not against pleasure. God is the creator of pleasure. What God is opposed to is the the place that we have pleasure in our lives at times. We have placed something outside of God in the place that only God deserves. And we find ourselves absolutely being beat up. And I do believe that one of the greatest tricks of the enemy is to convince people that if you really do come to know God, God is going to place these great restrictions on you, and you'll never have fun, you'll never have joy, and you'll never experience pleasure again. It's the status that we give pleasure in our lives that takes us down, right? It's when we begin to worship the created and not the creator we have issues. It's when we begin to pursue pleasure as the ultimate aim of our lives, it leads to so much wreckage and devastation. I believe that each and every one of us should have as our ultimate aim to live with eternity as our backdrop. I believe that our ultimate aim in life should be that I want to know God. I want to know Christ and him crucified, as Paul would say. That should be our aim. And I would tell you that anything that distracts us or diminishes us in our walk with God and anything that would bring about hindrance or jeopardize the well-being of our neighbor, it must be eliminated. It must be eliminated. You've got to think about that because we live in a culture of pleasure. You will never know. You will never know what the distractions in your life are until you define what your ultimate goal in life is. Did you get that? You will never even understand what the distractions are until you identify and define what your ultimate goal is. Once we become servants of Christ and followers of Jesus Christ, then those other things that were distractions for all those years, we begin to notice them. And we go, that's diminishing my walk. That's taking me away from my allegiance to Christ. Those things that I have been uh, participated in over the years, it hinders and jeopardizes the spiritual growth of my neighbor. It must be dealt with. So you have to ask the question, even as we get into this, what is my ultimate goal in life? What am I aiming at? What defines my life day in and day out? James chapter 4, verse 1, James starts with this, this question, if you will. What is causing, cause, what is the cause of all of this, the, these quarrels and all of these fights that you're having? 
What's causing all this conflict and all this animosity and all this disruption? What's causing it? Listen to where he goes. Is it not the conflicting desires of pleasures? Is it not the conflicting desires of pleasure which wage war in your soul? The word pleasure there is the word hedon, hedonistic, hedonism. And and he uses that word right there. It's lusting after misguided desires. It's all about trying to satisfy and appease to the flesh. He goes, what's causing all of the conflict and fights and battles and turmoil and strife? He goes, it's that hedonistic mindset that exists inside the human heart. If you were to define hedonism, Here's a working definition. Hedonism believes that all people have the right to do everything in their power to achieve the greatest amount of pleasure possible. That's the culture in which we live. You can do whatever you want to do to chase after the greatest amount of pleasure that you can experience in life. That is what our culture tells us, you've got to go for the gusto. You only live once, right? And it's all these messages that we're buying into or being subscribed to about feeding your flesh, about living a life of just hedonistic pleasure. Ravi Zacharias made this statement. He said, pleasure without God pleasure without boundaries, will actually leave you emptier than before. This is a biblical experiential truth. The loneliest people in the world are among the wealthiest and the most famous who found no boundaries within which to live. The loneliest people in the world are those who have exhausted pleasure and they come away empty. The loneliest, most miserable most dissatisfied person are the ones who have tapped into what the world says it's got to offer. Here's where you're gonna find life and fun and identity and we tap into pleasure and pleasure lets us down. Pleasure does not satisfy and the conflicting desires of chasing after a hedonistic lifestyle of pleasure will lead to so much corruption and so much chaos and the collateral damage that our sin causes because of the pursuit of trying to satisfy and gratify the flesh is devastating. And some of us chased after pleasure. Some of us pursued pleasure. Some of us in this room, and I would say all of us in this room, at one time or another, We tried to meet our needs apart from God. We tried to satisfy our cravings of the flesh apart from God. And it left us empty. It left us broke. And it created so much collateral damage. Think about this. Our son Benji and his wife Grace just had their second child back on July 14th. And I started thinking about this, even with little ones. Do you realize that conflict is buried in the heart of us from the time we're born? You look at little ones. Little ones will get your attention. Little ones, if their needs are not met and satisfied immediately, they will let you know. 
Little ones know how to argue even though they don't know how to talk. And when they scream, that scream, uh, it, they're yelling, hold me, feed me, rock me, change me. And we're all born into the world with this me-centered approach. It's about me. You got to take care of, of me. And if you're new here, I, 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 one of my favorite stories is when our son, Jesse David, was two years old. And Jesse, our, our middle one, that dude struggled sleeping through the night. That boy did not want to sleep through the night. And uh, he would scream and he would yell and he would cause so much conflict in the middle of the night. So much so that Rachel and Benji at that time, uh, I went down and slept in the basement just to get away from the noise where we could sleep. Barb, thank you for wearing it for all those years. But when he was two years old, he wakes us up one night and Barb jumps to her feet. You could hear him in the monitor. I want cold water. I want cold water. I want cold water. He's two years old. And, and Barb jumps up and I hear through the monitor, Jesse, you have a sippy cup right here. You have water. You're not going to get any stinking cold water. Drink what you've got. Don't call me anymore. You go to sleep. She comes back in. She lays in bed. She's there about three minutes, and all of a sudden, we hear again, I said I want cold water. I said I want cold water. I said, I got him. So I walk into the bedroom where he is. And I said, what is going on? I want cold water. I said, yes, come with daddy. And I take his little hand and I said, do you want cold water? Yes. And we walk out of his bedroom and we walk through the living room and we walk into, uh, through the kitchen and we get to our bedroom. And I said, you want cold water? And I held his little jammies right here by the collar and I took that Nike water bottle, like quarterback shoes, the spray bottle, and I sprayed his little face. It is like February. And I sprayed him and I sprayed him and I said, do you want cold water? I don't want cold water. I don't want cold water. And I said, listen to me. You're going back to bed. Your jammies are wet. I know it's winter, son. But listen to me. We've got to learn to tame the self-centeredness of your flesh. Now, focus on the family probably will not pick up that story and share it. <laughs> but can I tell you something? Conflict and the desire to satisfy me is in us from the time we're born. And if we're not careful, and if we start to accommodate and appease every fleshly desire that we have, or even in our kids, we lead them to a very dark place. We've got to learn to deal with these flesh patterns that are so ingrained in us because the misguided desires and the satisfying of the flesh and the selfish ambition, it will lead to so much frustration and devastation and it causes so many fights. Now let me, let, me, let, me, let me let you in on something out of the gate. I've done quite a few weddings here this summer. I've got a few more to do this summer. If you're married, you're going to have conflict. 
I have young people look at me, and they're all excited about getting married, and they're like, we just get along. We never argue about anything. I'm like, well, one of you is not thinking. One of you is not honest. One of you is not really talking. Because if you get married, even Nick being married to Lisa, as sweet as Lisa is, and me being married to Barb, as sweet as Barb is, I can promise you I married a person who was born into sin, and she married a person that was born really into sin, and you're going to have conflict. I was told years ago that marriages go through three stages, the honeymoon stage. Oh, look at us. This is so much fun. We can live on Pleasure Island. And then it goes through the next stage. The party's over. Ooh, reality kicks in. And then it goes through the third stage. Honey, let's make a deal. Because if we're going to flourish, we're going to have to work at this. The problem is so many people enter into marriage thinking that they can just stay in the honeymoon stage. But reality is, reality kicks in. And then you have to learn to accommodate and work with each other. Think about it. What were your expectations of your spouse when you first got married? How's that working out for you? Right? Reality is life is hard. Marriage is hard. Parenting is hard. It's all very difficult. Here we go, James chapter 4. He gives us three basic desires that create and cause so much conflict. Three basic desires that can contaminate each and every one of us. The first one is the desire to have more. And that's the culture in which we find ourselves living. I just got to have more. He said, you want what you don't have. So you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous for what others have. And you can't possess it. So you fight to take it away from them. You've got inside your heart this desire to have more. Materialism pleasure, possessions. I've just got to have more. It's like that's the culture in which we find ourselves living today. I was doing research. Americans spend annually over $96 billion a year on beer, pleasure, sedate, medicate. Over $10 billion is spent annually by Americans on romance novels. Remember the buzz? Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? No, I've read the 66 canonized books that God inspired. But if we're not careful, we began to entertain even this romance side of things that are written in such a way only to lure the flesh. Americans spend $34.6 billion a few years ago just on gambling 11 billion a year spent on coffee. And did you know, Kara, that the number one group that spends money on coffee is millennials? That group between 24 and 35, they spend about $2,000 a year just on coffee. Really? How's that working for us? Here's the interesting thing 300 billion a year is spent by the American people to treat stress. Related illnesses. What an incredible grave number. Treating stress-related illnesses. 300 billion. How did we get these stress 
related issues because we obtain what we couldn't maintain and we find ourselves pursuing pleasure and we got all this junk and all this traffic and all this chaos and I'm stressed out and we've avoided living simple lives. And so we live in a culture not only obsessed with the have more, but has become stressed out as a result of it. Ronnie, this is interesting right here. The average American spends 19000 a year on housing, 9000 a year on cars and transportation. Unless you're my son Caleb and he spends up much on tires. No, uh, 8000 a year on food, 3000 a year on entertainment. That's 40000 right there. And people say, hey, man, I don't know where all my money's going. And if we're not careful, we obtain and we start to purchase and we start to live in places and drive these fancy cars and our, our payments are so extreme and the insurance. And, and, and it's like, man, we're broke as a joke because we're pursuing pleasure. Solomon, if anyone had a PhD in pursuing pleasure, it was Solomon. And Solomon when you read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it's all about a hedonistic life. It was all about the consumption of having more. Listen to what Solomon even writes. He goes, I said to myself, let's give pleasure a try. I want you to notice all the I statements he makes in chapter 2 here of Ecclesiastes. I said to myself, let's give pleasure. Let's give hedonism a try. He said, I decided... I decided to cheer myself with wine. I hope to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect water to irrigate my groves. You got to remember this is a desert place in Israel where he's speaking from. He goes, man, I had water. I owned great herds and flocks. Here's the phrase, more than any other king in Jerusalem before me. I had all this stuff more than anybody else. I collected great sums of silver and gold. I hired women singers. I had beautiful concubines. I had everything that a man could desire. I became greater than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. Anything I wanted, I took. I did not restrain myself from any of those joys. And it was all vanity. It was all vain. It was striving after the wind because he says there is no prophet under the sun. And that phrase under the sun means there is absolutely no gain and no profit when you eliminate God from being the center of your life. He goes, I tried everything that the world had. I had concubines, extra women, if you will. I had these singers. I had wine. I had, you name it. If any man had ever lived on Pleasure Island, Solomon says, bam, I was at the top. Man, what a vain life. Wow, what an empty life. Wow, I did not keep God at the center. I eliminated God. And that's where so many people live today. They live a life excluding God. God created things to be used and things to be enjoyed. We are to use things and love people. 
We've got it so twisted now that we love things and we use people. We dispose of relationships because we're all about using whatever we can, Andrew, to satisfy the cravings of our flesh. What is going to make me feel good? Researchers say that 56% of all marriages that end in divorce end over money and materialistic problems. What are you saying? The gotta have more syndrome does not work. It's killing people every day. The thrill of having stuff will wear off. Any of us that have ever been consumed and attached to, I've got to have this, it wears off. Every car in a junkyard used to be somebody's pride and joy. Every car you see in a junkyard Once upon a time, somebody said, I got to have it. I need it. I can't live without it. And now it's rusted junk. The thrill of having junk wears off. Stuff does not satisfy. Stuff will leave you empty. And I can promise you, chasing the thought process of having more, it will rob you of contentment. And there's so many people that live there today. And so are you living a, I got to have more life right now? Where is Christ in the equation? What's causing all these conflicts and fights and animosity? And what's causing all of it? He goes, you've got to deal with your flesh. Here's the second one. Then we have the desire to feel good. We're chasing that feeling, right? I want to feel good. So we sedate and we medicate, not only with alcohol, not only with drugs, but we do it with sex and we do it with porn and we do it with materialism and we do it with houses and we do it with so many different things. Hey, this right here will make me feel good. Verse 3, you want only what will give you pleasure. That, 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 that. That's what he's saying here. Hey, 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 you know what you're chasing after? How is this going to make me feel? It's not how is this going to lead me to righteousness. How is this going to conform me more to the likeness of Christ? How how is this going to make me feel? So chasing pleasure and feeling good is more important than allegiance to God. And there's so many people that make up the nucleus of the church that acknowledge God. Oh, yeah, I believe. But their allegiance is not to God. Their allegiance is to the world, is to culture, is to this feel-good stuff. 1 Timothy 6, 17, tell those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money which will soon be gone. Don't trust in your money. Don't be proud. It's not going to last very long. Their trust should be in the living God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. God desires for us to enjoy life, but it's got to be on his terms. And when we refuse to trust God and walk with God and lean into God, and, and our allegiance is not to God, I can promise you all hell will break loose. The person who is living the life of if it feels good, do it, will experience tremendous disappointment and will experience major heartache. 
after staying in the world from the time I was 15, 16, up until almost 23 before I came to faith in Christ, I can tell you one of the things that drove me to the gospel was the emptiness of pursuing and trying to satisfy the flesh. Man, it's so empty. It's so shallow. It doesn't last. And I started to realize that every buzz and every high eventually wears off. That's why he would write in Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine. It leads to dissipation. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, with weed, with it dissipates, it disappears, it doesn't last. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to be filled. There's joy when the Holy Spirit is occupying the core of who you are. And the truth is, as the Rolling Stones sang, you can't always get what you want. And even when you try to get what you want, it's going to let you down. So you've got the desire to have more and the desire to feel good, and then he talks about the desire of trying to be important. The reason you don't have what you want is you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God, you don't get it because your whole motive is so jacked up and wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Your, your motive is jacked up. It's all about your pride. It's all about you having power and prominence and popularity. And it's all about you being the man, the stud. Look at me. I'm the man. I'm the stud. I'm the one that you ought to be modeling your life. Your, your whole motivation is to draw attention to yourself. It's to pump you up. You gotta be so careful because the world continues to send us these messages, right? Look at me. Oh, I'm styling and profiling. Oh, you look so good since you've lost so much weight. That, 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 that could be true. But how are we doing internally? How is our soul? How is our spirit? How's our mind? Oh, I just love your hair. That's external. How is the heart? And we focus as a culture so much on the external and the image, and we focus so little on integrity and character and true belief in the Lord. The desire to impress others is so shallow, and it's saturated with pride. I, I, I would challenge you to think through this question. The next time that you're about to make a purchase, or the next time you're about to make a, a decision to gratify and satisfy the flesh, stop and just ask the question, is this really worth it? I think if we just stop and go, is this really worth it? Do I want to give my time and my energy to this? I've seen so many guys shipwreck it, so many girls shipwreck it over the years because they exchange this momentary pleasure, but was it worth it? We screw up our families and we screw up our kids and we screw up our lives and we, we just mess up so much stuff. If we stop and go, is this really worth it? You want to talk about harsh language? Craig, listen to this. He goes, you adulterers. James, he's up, bro. 
You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. I'm reading through this going, adulterers. Strong language, right? You claim to be the bride of Christ, but you're spiritually unfaithful. You you continue to crawl into the bed with the world. You you claim your allegiances to the Lord. James is like, you guys claim your allegiance and your love and your desires for the Lord, but you keep crawling in the bed with these less wild lovers with the world. So harsh. You've allowed your misguided passions and desires to, to just take you so far off course. And he's begging these people, I want you to know God. I want you to experience God. I want you to really walk in the fullness of the gospel. And we've got to just stop and go, am I faithful to God? Or is there things in my life where I'm shacking up with the world? Is that, is, is that, that's what he's saying there. God is jealous. He's a jealous God. He's not going to share his glory with nobody else. And if you're his bride, act like his bride, act like the beloved of the Lord, you don't have to shack up with the world. You don't have to. And, and then he pauses and he, he says, you know, what, you know what the problem is? The problem is you, you don't trust God. And you don't seek God. You're not praying. He goes, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motive is all wrong. You're not seeking God. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are tired and weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, I want to give you rest. But we don't pray. We don't ask God. We don't seek God. And we end up turning to the wrong sources. Chris, you were talking about childlike faith and, and just keeping it simple. And it's like, God, I need help. Just simple. No flashy, articulate, like rehearsed prayers. God, I'm jacked up. I need help. I, I, I do want to be the beloved of the Lord. I'm, I'm sick. My flesh patterns. Lord, it's leaving me empty and miserable and chaotic. It's just simple. He goes, well, just pray. It's not, that, it's not that hard. Just talk to me. Trust me. Come to me. That's what he says. Hey, I'll meet your needs. I'll take care of you. Just, just come. Cast your cares on me. Just hurl them. Trust me. Just honor what I'm asking you to do. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, I have never Never regretted seeking God, praying, and trusting God. My greatest regrets are not found in my life as a result of trusting God. My greatest regrets are found as a result of trying to gratify my flesh, satisfy my pleasure. You say, just, just come to me. So I was thinking about like, so what hinders our prayers and what keeps us even from praying? He goes, you know what? Wrong motives and selfishness will jack it up. That, that, that hurts us, Russell. It, it hinders us. It's right there. 
another thing that really hinders our prayers or why we don't pray is we've got unconfessed sin that we're not willing to address. And the psalmist, even David said in Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity or hold on to sin and iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. So we go, there ain't no use in praying. I got this unconfessed stuff that I'm not willing to deal with. But when you're willing to address it and confess it and give it, God, I'm sick and tired of carrying that. I mean, when we have unforgiveness, that's what he says in Matthew 5. You're at the altar praying. You've got some issues with somebody. Don't don't live a life of holding on to resentment and bitterness. Even lack of harmony in the home. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. You're dominating. You're controlling. You're manipulating. You, 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 You know you're hurting your prayer life. Yes. We're told repeatedly, that, that a lack of faith can, can hinder us. It's like, why would I ask God if I'm not even trusting that God and believing in that God and my allegiance is not to that God? Or how about a lack of obedience? I've showed you what to do and you're not even doing it and I want to bless you and lead you and show you my love, but you're, you're not obeying me. And then just pride and self-righteousness and I can tell you this, a prayerless life, a prayerless life is filled with pride. And and you know really why we, for many of us, why we don't pray is because we don't think we need God. Because if we really believed that every breath we took and every step we took depended on God, we'd pray more. If I was depending on God, I, I would pray more. I would pray, waking up at 3.45 this morning, all right, Lord, I just want to hang out with you. I can't believe that you're like fond of me and you, you, you really just want to minister and love on me, driving down the road wherever you're at in life. If we were really dependent upon God, the first thing we would do is like, stop, let's pray. God, we're just going to trust that you're leading this situation no matter how chaotic it is. And if we did that, I mean, I want you to think, if we trusted God, we would worry less, we would argue less, we would fight less. We would say, God is in control. God is faithful. God is going to lead us through this storm. You know, the old gospel hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. There's that line it says, and oh, what peace we often forfeit. And oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. And I think about that. It's like I'm not carrying it to the Lord we forfeit peace. We carry all the shame and guilt. And if you've lived a life of hedonistic pleasure, I promise you the gospel of grace is for you today. The goodness of God, Josh, can free a man who is strung out and stuck. I promise you that Jesus can set the captive free. I am a result of that. I, I carried needless pain. I carried guilt and shame. 
And when I cried out, Lord, you got to save me from me. And I confessed it. He gets there in James 5. Confess your sins to one another so that you can experience God's healing. Don't cover. Don't conceal. Don't suppress. Lord, I need you. I need you. And you know what I know? God opposes the proud, but God gives grace to the humble. God is like, I am declaring war on hedonism. I'm declaring war on it. If you're leaving a, living a life of hedonistic pleasure, I can promise you it's going to cause all kinds of conflict with God and with other people. And to be in opposition with God is a dangerous place to be. I'm opposed to God. I'm not seeking God. I'm not trusting God. I'm, I, I'm on a collision course. And you're not going to win. Listen to the cure, and I'll break this down in more detail next week. God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, before the Lord, and the Lord will lift you up. He gives grace. Verses 6 through 8 says, God gives a greater grace God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Your humility, the posture of your heart of of humbling yourself before God. Lord, even the breath that I have was given by you. The life that I have is given by you. I have nothing. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. It's like humility. God... I, you didn't need me. I need you. You made me. I, I, I'm, I'm humbling myself before you. Your thoughts and your ways are so much higher and better. And I humble myself. And then I submit, I rank under, I yield to. As I do that, I resist the devil. The devil flees because greater is he who lives inside of me than he who is in this world. So as I humble myself before God and submit to that God. He goes, then you resist him and he's going to leave you. Draw near to God. God will draw near to you. Keep pressing into the Lord. Keep leaning into the Lord. Keep praying. What a friend we have in Jesus. He's come, come, come to me. God gives grace. And I'm so thankful for grace. Amazing, mind-blowing grace. Oh, thank you, Lord, for not giving me what I deserve. Thank you for not giving me what I've worked for. Thank you for giving me what only you can give me that I could never merit. God's grace, I can promise you, is his power to change. I wrap it with this. What would you like to change about yourself? You're going to need God's grace to do it. Your strength, your resources, your solutions and agendas that you've tried to exercise over the years, it didn't work. 
What do you want to change about your marriage? What do you want to change about your family? You're going to need God's grace to do it. It's going to require humility as the posture of heart and submission to the things of God. There's only one way to receive his grace. And it's through humility and surrender. What do you want to change? God, here's what I need you to do. It's going to require humility and surrender. And, 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 and it's this simple for me. God, I need your help. I am desperate. I need you. I repent and I turn from trusting me and I yield and surrender to you. It's just that simple.